Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God used a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, and with that, the kids are dismissed for Kids Church. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 10. Bye. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. I was once told by a pastor, uh, older, wiser than me, if you want a strong church, you need strong families. If you want strong families, you need strong marriages. So today, as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we want to see that happen. We want to see that be the case as Jesus talks to us about marriage. We want to see people have good, healthy, and strong marriages. And as Mark reminded me earlier today, and so I'll remind everybody else on that note, guys, Valentine's Day is next weekend. So make sure you've marked that down and get that taken care of so that we can have a nice, strong church and next Sunday isn't a, an awkward, cold-shouldered Sunday. And so as we look at this, we see that Christian marriage, or marriage in general, is really designed by God to be society's cornerstone. God's first smallest institution is just that, when one man and one woman come together to be married. They become the smallest institution that there can be, but it's to be the cornerstone of all that we see. And while this passage comes to us because people are trying to test Jesus, I think every Christian should want to look and say, what did Jesus say about this? I think sermons like this, the tempting part is to say, well, what if I'm not married? Well, if I'm not married, then this must not apply to me, or I guess I just get to check out this Sunday. But if marriage is society's cornerstone, and it's this really important thing, if Jesus, a single man, is getting tested about it, isn't this something that we should all want to know about? It's something that we should all seek to learn and know and say, what is going on here? Because even if it isn't God's plan for you to be married— or at least maybe not at this time, we want to see that God's plan is to see healthy marriages that flourish, surrounded and centered on him and what they look like. So with that, let us read from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. He says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. (laughs) And the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to him, Because of your hardness of heart, 
he wrote, this, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if he divorces her husband, her husband, or if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So once again, we find that Jesus is making his way slowly but surely to Jerusalem, even if it is kind of a roundabout way in what he is doing. And so he's coming to a new region and a new place. And while there, these Pharisees come up and they ask him a question. They ask him this in order to test him. Again, the purpose of this passage isn't Jesus saying, let me teach you about marriage, but the purpose of this passage is for Jesus to answer these particular group of Pharisees who've come and asked him this question. And they're here and they're, they're teaching. And I want us to see a couple things about marriage. And the first one is this, is that marriage is messy. As we look at these first five verses here, we can see that they bring him in and, and that there is some acknowledgement even from Jesus as he appeals to Moses that there is messiness in marriage. <laughs> and so they come to Jesus trying to test him, trying to trick him. And they use what I would think is a pretty clever ploy. If you want to trick somebody, if you want to watch how somebody moves through a difficult ethical kind of situation, what do you do? Choose relationships that are really, really messy and then ask them, how are we supposed to navigate that? And here's the thing that we know about human relationships. The closer the relationship is, the messier it really gets. The more you sin against each other, the more complications you have, the more difficulties you have. And so these Pharisees are being pretty clever as they ask about the closest of all human relationships. You really want to get in some trouble? Ask somebody about a messy situation. You want to find messy situations? Look at marriages. Marriage is just a messy kind of thing. And there's no way around it. <laughs> and so they asked Jesus this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus does what every Christian should do anytime we're asked a question. He asks them, he points back to the scriptures. He says, what has Moses commanded you? What has Moses said to you? What does the Bible say? It's an important thing for all of us. Uh, I've heard Christians say things like sometimes, I don't know what the Bible says about that, but I'll tell you what I think about it. And what we really need to do is be a little more humble. We need to say this, I don't know what the Bible says about that, so I guess I really don't know what I think about that. See, the Bible has to inform all that we think of all that we do. It's easy to allow experience or our own wisdom kind of seek its way in there, but if we aren't sure what the scriptures have to say about something, I want to caution you just to be humble. Don't give an opinion and just say, I don't know. Let me look into that. And Jesus looks at them and he points to the Bible. He says, what does Moses say to you? And as he does this, they answer and they paraphrase a, a, a passage from Deuteronomy. So what they answer is, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send them away, and send her away. Moses allowed for marriage. And what they're doing is they're paraphrasing Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. <laughs> it should be on the screen here. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some, he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, he who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it seems what happens is actually Moses is, is writing a provision that is protecting women. Women in a society who would not have the ability to provide for themselves if they're not married. If a man would have sent her away, he's at least making it that he can't just send her away and then claim that's my wife and not take care of her so that nobody else can come and take care of her and cut her off from these things. While at the same time, he's making it so this guy can't be wishy-washy. If you're gonna send her away, then she is no longer your wife and you don't have any right to her. And if another takes her, that is not your, you, you cannot act as if you have some claim to this woman. And so in a weird and harsh society, Moses is providing this kind of a law to protect these women and Jesus is explaining that. Moses is giving you this law, why? Because of your hardness of heart. That's what divorce comes in. And what's happening then in Jesus' day, these Pharisees have an argument. There's these two schools of thought, these two factions on divorce. One says that indecency, making that word there, if he finds any indecency in her, that it's only talking about in cases of sexual immorality or adultery. So if your wife or your husband cheats on you, then you have the right to seek a divorce. And that's one faction of thought. That was the more conservative one. The more progressive faction of thought would say things like this. If she does anything like spoil a dish of food, a man could send her away because he has found indecency in her. Even if he has found a fairer one than she, for it is written, if she shall be, it shall be if she finds fa- no favor in his eyes. So you have this like really extreme kind of faction that's coming. So Jesus, tell us, which is it? What makes it okay to get a divorce? Can we just send a woman away for anything or does she have to commit this one special kind of sin of adultery and then we can send her away? And Jesus doesn't really answer either. Jesus does something different. Jesus starts to explain, he starts to point because he's really saying you're asking the wrong question. See, they're asking what's permissible. Jesus desires from us what is commendable. And there's a difference between what's permissible, what can be okay in a hard and harsh situation, and what should we as Christians, those who follow what is true, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, what should they be looking for? Instead of looking for a way out of their marriage, Jesus is saying, you need to be looking for a way that you might glorify God in your marriage. You're asking the wrong question. And so he looks at them and he says, Moses gave this to you, why? Because of your hardness of heart. Now, if we're familiar with the writings of Moses in those first five books of the Bible, there's a really, really well-known character. He's a nameless character. He doesn't even get a name. Who we're told has a really, really hard heart. And that's Pharaoh. Jesus is saying something to these Jews that they would never want to accept. You know what kind of guy divorces his wife? Pharaoh. 
Moses gave you this because your heart can be hardened like his heart. You got a hard heart? Then Moses provides a provision to take care of these women when your heart has been hardened. But he's pointing them to and he's giving them this hard teaching. Listen, that is not what God is calling you to though. God isn't calling us to get divorced and we're not seeking out what's permissible. We're seeking out what's commendable. And he's looking to these men and he's challenging them and he is saying, how hard your heart? Does the grace of God still have room in your heart to restore and redeem even the most difficult of situations? We live in a culture where casual divorce is a normal thing. Where we have been given this false narrative that divorces can be amicable, meaning friendly or happy. That both sides can really just reach a place where we say, you know, I'm just not happy anymore. You're just not happy anymore. God just wants us to be happy. So let's get a divorce and then it's all fine and dandy and it's going to be okay. And what we have to say is that's just not true. Anyone who's been intimately involved in a divorce will tell you that's just not true. There's no amicable part of this. There's no friendliness that's happening. Divorce happens when the heart gets hard to the grace of God. And we'll see later in the sermon that there are texts in the scriptures, even in the New Testament, that do protect spouses that have been greatly sinned against. But I want to just say the goal that Jesus is trying to push toward is not asking the question, how can I get out of this? Jesus is trying to push towards, how might we redeem this? You're saying, if you want to get a divorce, Jesus is saying, your heart is hard. You've hardened yourself to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of forgiveness. Because the reality is, as every married person will tell you, is marriage is messy. It is so messy. It's so difficult. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. It doesn't exist. Everybody's got problems. We put on our church clothes and our church face and we pretend like there's no issues going on at home, but there's always some kind of issues going on at home. And what I want to say is God is using the messiness. That's actually an intentional part of God's plan. When God developed this plan to give us marriage, he did it so that we would rub against each other. That's actually the point of having two genders. You're bringing these two things that are different and you're bringing them together and they're clashing against each other. She folds towels this way. He doesn't even fold towels. Right? That's the reality of marriage. It's this messy thing that we're, we're just grinding on each other. And that's not, that's not, you know, we're just, we're just making each other upset. We're just, ah, why do you do this? Why are you this way? Why are you the way that you are? Right? We joke in that. We say these things. What's happening? What is happening throughout all of marriage? God is using the messiness. God is using what he is doing. I want you to listen to what the author Dave Harvey says in his excellent book called When Sinners Say I Do. The book acknowledges that you have married a sinner and so have they. And he says this about your spouse. Your spouse was a strategic choice made by a wise and loving God. Selected by him for you from the beginning of the world. Your spouse is an essential part of God's rescue mission for your life. Often a spouse plays his or her part by raising the temperature, 
But if we're wisely honest, we realize that God is behind it all, revealing the familiar sin so that it might be overcome by amazing grace. What he's trying to get at there is this. You have weaknesses in your heart that need to be changed and sanctified. And God has given you your spouse because in your singleness, you didn't see it. But now that you're living with this other person and day in and day out of life, and even their sin is helping you see sin that already exists. It's applying pressure. And when the pressure comes, it shows us where the cracks still remain, where the weak points still are in our hearts. Marriage is meant to change us and meant to make us look like Jesus. And that cannot happen without the mess. The messiness is a part of the plan. And the beautiful thing is, is if you can learn that in marriage, you will then bring that into the church. That's why we say things like marriages make healthy churches because churches are messy. Churches have problems. Living in community with people who are different than you, who who don't come from the same background as you, who every now and then are just gonna maybe annoy you just a little bit, that's a part of the plan. That's a part of the plan. He's showing you the cracks in your heart by applying the heat and applying the pressure and he's showing you this is where we still have work to do. Are you willing to trust me and follow me? Do you believe that I'm a sovereign, wise, and good God and this person that you gave, that I gave you, that's the right person? Pastor John Piper will say, do you know how you know that you married the right person? Check the name on the marriage certificate. That's the right person. So as Jesus is looking at this and he's talking about Moses, he is acknowledging the reality. Marriage is a messy, messy thing. And we start talking about divorce. It is rarely friendly or kind. It's never friendly or kind. It's heart-wrenching and it hurts. But what we need to see is that God uses messiness. What we need to apply from this text is we need to see that messiness is a tool in the hands of God. God uses the sins of other people. He uses their quirks and quirks and all the things about them to change us, to make him more like himself. So yeah, I know. I feel the tension. I want to run and start asking questions. What about in this situation? What about this situation? I just wanted to put it in park for a little bit on verse five and say, listen, that annoying habit that your spouse has, God ordained. And I know that sounds weird, but God is working in the smallest things of your life to make you more and more like him. Your spouse is a part of that plan. See, God can wield that tool because he is the ultimate owner of marriage. It belongs to him. Marriage can be used by God for our good for that pure reason. Marriage belongs to God. Let's look at verses six through nine. But... From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall no longer become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
So Jesus is telling them, listen, it's because of your hardness of heart. And he doesn't just immediately answer their question, when is divorce permissible? Instead, he takes them back to God's original plan for marriage because he wants to frame out his answer in God's eternal plan for marriage. And so what he does is he paraphrases two passages from the book of Genesis. One is Genesis 1.27, where he talks about God created them male and female, and male and female, he created them in his image. And then he also brings about that passage that we just read, Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 24. We read that in our scripture reading where it talks about, and they two shall become one flesh and a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So Jesus paraphrases those texts, that creation story, and he tells you this is what marriage is all about. This is my goal. This is what God was, is doing. Therefore, and then adds, that therefore what may, God has joined together, let no man separate. And so he tells us that, and this is what he sees. Again, the Pharisees, they want to know, hey, what, what is permissible? What can I do? And Jesus says, no, this is what is commendable. Look what is happening here. Because he starts telling us what marriage really is and that this is God's plan from the beginning to have one man and one woman together for a lifetime. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is literally to be the closest human relationship that you have on this planet is to your spouse. Because he gives the example of the most naturally close relationship that we can think of, the one between parent and child. Parents and children have an immediate bond. It's tight-knit and close. But what does God say? God says, and when he finds that woman and she finds that man, the two shall become one flesh and he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife your spouse becomes the number one person in your life. It's God first and your spouse second. And that even includes your parents. Parents are a wonderful source of wisdom, temporal help, free babysitting. Praise God. But when you get married, your bills are your bills. Your struggles are your struggles. Your difficulties are your difficulties. You two are together. Your parents cannot be the referee. Your parents cannot be the person you vent to when you're mad about your spouse. Your your parents definitely cannot be the tiebreaker. Your husband will never have a chance of having a good relationship with your dad if he cannot respect him and go the other way around. Your dad will never respect your husband if you complain to your mom about him. Because who do you think your mom's going to tell? Your mom is never going to love your wife as a daughter if you just complain to her and your dad about her. They're going to look and say, that's the thorn in my son's flesh, not a part of my son's flesh. Your parents cannot be the place that you go to to work out those kind of problems. That, that will ruin the relationship with your in-laws. That will ruin the relationship with your mom and dad. Get pastors. Get other people to help you. Yeah, mom and dad are such a helpful thing. And we want to bring that in there. Bring them in. Glean from their wisdom. But they're not your referee. They're not the tiebreaker. You have decided to walk away. The things in early marriages that are so hard is, well, that's not the way my family did it well, you're a new family now. (laughs) You can change some things. It's okay. The same goes for your children. 
As our children get older, it becomes very tempting to use them as referee in the middle of struggle, to use them as tiebreaker, to complain to them about mom or dad, or to just to put them first, to say things like, it's not about us, it's all about the kids. No, it's not. God has told you, your spouse comes first, because here's the dirty secret, those kids will leave you. She is not going anywhere. He is not going anywhere. That's got to be the number one person in your life. It's God first, your spouse second, and the rest falls in line from there. The best thing for your children is to know, is to know that daddy loves mommy with all of his heart and he is never going anywhere. The best thing for your children is to know mommy loves daddy and she's never going anywhere. Kids need stability, and nothing speaks stability like a stable marriage. That's what your children need. It's better for your kids. It is better for your kids to know they rank second, to know that mom comes first. It will be. It'll give them security. It'll make them happy. It'll show them what marriage is really all about. Don't fear what happens if we put each other before our children. It's got to go the, way, the other way around. The number one human relationship is to your wife. Listen to what God's vision for marriage is. I want to look at just two different passages here. First is Ephesians 5, 22-33. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives with their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's the big takeaway from the passage. That passage could be five sermons in of itself. You are telling a story in your marriage to the non-believing world. You are telling the story of God's love for his church and his bride. The way you love your wife is the way your neighbors are gonna see that God loves his people. The way you honor, respect your husband is the way your neighbors will look and see that's the way God's people honor and respect God. You are telling a story and it's bigger than yourself. And we've got to accept that reality and accept that challenge that that's what marriage does but I also want to look at this other passage. It's from the Song of Solomon, a, a, a book of the Bible that's literally just a long poem about these two lovers in blissful marriage and love. Listen to what it says in verses, chapter first, 4, verses 9 through 10. You've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. With one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. 
How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Marriage is supposed to be a really good thing. You should look to your spouse and say, oh, you've captivated my heart. Just one look at your eyes and you have just captivated my heart. And I know not every moment of marriage is this intense romantic thing. We know that. We embrace that. That's just the truth. But marriage should be a really good thing. Marriage should be a really enjoyable thing for you, for your spouse. When we do marriage God's way, when God is first, our spouse is second, it brings about fruitfulness and joy to life. Every now and then it's okay if the kids walk in and say, Mom, Dad, don't kiss in the kitchen. Ew. There's a healthy reality to a man and woman in love. And we want to see that happen, that God's plan in marriage is for the two to be one flesh, to be enthralled with each other. In Proverbs, he, the, the, the writer tells his son, be intoxicated in her love, my son. Be intoxicated in the love of your wife. Be enthralled with her. Be captivated by her. And the secret to that, the secret to, to living out marriages that are enjoyable and good is to learn this, to live this, apply this to your life. Marriage is not for you. It's not even really about your spouse. But first and foremost, marriage is for God. Listen to what Jesus says there. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. God put you together. God gave you your spouse and his kindness and love towards you. With all the messiness that comes with him or her, he's there and he loves you. God first, spouse second, paves the way for the rest to fall in line. And it provides the foundation you will need to see a marriage last for a lifetime which brings us to our final point this morning, that marriage is for life. God's design for marriage is that you would be together until one of you goes to be with him in glory. Verse 10, it says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery that is a hard saying. That is a hard saying in Mark. Marriage is for life. And if you divorce your spouse, marry another, you commit adultery. If, you're, if she divorces you, marries another, she commits adultery. Now we want to teach the full breadth of Scripture. Yes, it is true. Matthew 19, 8 through 10, we see that the disciples see this is a really hard saying, and this is how Jesus says it in Matthew 19, 8 through 10. It's the parallel passage. Matthew records it a little differently, and he says to them, and he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is such a case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They're saying, if my only way out of this is she cheats on me, whew, maybe I should think twice about even getting married. 
That's a hard saying. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, when you get married, you are saying it is the two of us forever. We are doing this. Now we notice here that Jesus gives a little stipulation. He talks about except for sexual immorality. But he's still pulling in that hardness of heart. It seems to me that he's talking about the hardness of heart and he's saying when, when we get that far, when we're sexually immoral with somebody else while married, that only happens when your heart has been hardened to the truth of the gospel. That only happens when you no longer fear God. Proverbs tell, tells us, as, as it talks about the man who's allured away by, by an adulteress, he says, can a man hold fire to his bosom and not be burned? Well, of course not. Adultery is going to burn you. You hold that close to you and it's going to get you. So he's saying, move away from that. Don't be a part of that. Jesus is talking about the hardness of heart that is happening. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul requotes Jesus and he, and he says that. Um, that's actually a, a passage I think people get confused because he says, I, not the Lord. And we think, and the thought is maybe that Paul's like not writing inspired by the Holy Spirit anymore. I think he's quoting Jesus. So when he talks about the Lord, he's saying, Jesus said this. Jesus said, you, you know, do not get divorced unless in the case of adultery. But then he said, when he says me and not the Lord, he's talking about Jesus didn't have this particular ethical situation. Jesus is sharing the gospel of Jews. Paul's now sharing the gospel of Gentiles. People who maybe are married, who one would convert and the other would not. And Paul then provides a situation in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says it's permissible to be divorced and what seems to be remarried because he says that the person is free, is the language that he uses there, if one is a Christian and the other is not and the non-Christian wants to leave. If the non-believer says, this Jesus stuff is too much for me, I'm out of here, Paul says you're free to let the person go and you would be free to remarry. That would be my understanding that text. And that also seems to be the understanding of here in Matthew where sexual morality happens. Now, here is the anecdotal thing that I just want to say. In my really brief experience of getting close to a decade of pastoral ex- of experience and these kind of things, many times, not all the time, but many times, it seems to be that when Christians have these problems, the sin against a lot of times the one who wants things to work out is the one who's committed the sin that has already decided I'm out and I'm gone. And I think that Jesus in his kindness and his mercy is providing some grace in Paul as well for these sinned against people. He's saying to these sinned against people, you don't have to not be married forever because your spouse has been hardened in their heart and has left you. I think the goal, the goal is always restoration. But sometimes that just doesn't happen. And it seems like these passages are providing some grace in those cases. But I think Mark records it this way because Mark is telling us these Pharisees were just looking for a way out. And Jesus is saying, you're claiming to be godly men. Godly men don't leave their spouse. You're hard. Your heart is hard if you can leave your husband or your wife. Don't let your heart become hardened like that. But seek restoration. Now, we have to ask these hard questions that come about. So what do we do 
if I'm listening to this sermon and I didn't do it right? What do I do if I'm listening to this and it doesn't go right? And Jesus just called me an adulterer. And I would say, let's look at the way Jesus treats adulterers. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees again, to test him, bring him a woman caught in adultery. They say, what are we supposed to do with her? And people start picking up stones to kill her. Jesus bends down and he writes in the sand. And as the story goes, he says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all slowly walk away. Now what we know is that Jesus has never sinned. If anybody has a right to cast a stone at this woman, even in his own words, he can do it. And Jesus looks at her and he goes, go and sin no more. We can see again in John 4, there's a woman who has had five different husbands and now she's living with somebody who isn't her husband. She's caught in a sexually immoral situation. She's done marriage wrong, not once, five times. She has got this wrong. And what does Jesus do to this woman who's come? She's not well respected in her society or anything around her. He looks to her and he says, do you want the water that's going to come to you and you will never thirst again. It's me. And he talks with her and he draws her close to himself and, she, and she, her life is forever changed and she goes and becomes this awesome evangelist and people come to believe because of her testimony. They believe that he is, the text tells us in John, we've come to believe that you are the savior of the world, not only because of her words, but because we've heard from you. This woman is saved in her eternity, sealed in Jesus. What does Jesus do when we get marriage wrong? Jesus draws us close. He loves us and he cares for us. And he says there is nothing that is unredeemable and unforgivable. That might mean in some hard situations, we've just got to say, mess that one up. I'm going to get this one right. And that's where we're at. And that's okay. That's where we're going to move. Because what we want to see is that the foundation of every marriage is the foundation of Christ himself and what he does. If you've been reading Gentle and Lowly this week, what is, he talks about that. He will never cast you out, no matter how deep your sin is. Now, what, what is it? He talks about grace and that grace is not just a thing to be given, but grace is a person. And he gives you himself. And that's what we're going to see. When you get marriage wrong, when we mess this stuff up, these things, even in our culture, in our society, particularly in our subculture, we can look and say, oh, man. We're going to see Jesus draws them so close into himself. His heart pours out into them. He gives them himself and he gives them grace upon grace upon grace and says, come be redeemed. Come be restored. Come drink of this living water and you will never thirst again. That's what Jesus does. Because Jesus is grace embodied and grace is a necessity for marriage. That's what we take away. When Jesus throws down a harsh command like this, we have to see that no one can obey it. That's the point. The disciples are thinking, what? I can't live like that. And Jesus is telling, not apart from me, you can't. Not apart from me. Grace is the foundation of every marriage. It's what we have to apply. It's what we have to learn. It's what we have to embody. Grace is a necessity for marriage. There is no other way. How do you deal with the messiness of your marriage? Grace. How do you deal with God's high call of marriage? Grace. Ladies, how do you submit to a massively imperfect man? Grace. Fellas, how do you love 
an imperfect woman. Grace. If we cannot embody, embrace, and be a part of this, see this necessity for marriage, then our marriages will never last. A marriage that lasts for life is one that's built on grace. Grace that comes from Jesus. Because grace is not only a necessity for marriage, grace is a necessity for life. We cannot live the way that God has us live or desires us to live without showing grace to one another day in and day out. Marriage tells that wonderful story about a God who left everything to pursue his love, Christ, the church. To redeem and restore sinners like me and you. Our groom Christ has sacrificed his life for our sake. He is a long sufferer and he will never cast us out. We cannot outsin his grace. And in marriage, we're called to show grace no matter what, and that's what makes a marriage last. You must first see that you are a sinner in need of grace, saved by grace and redeemed by it, and embrace that and share it with your wife. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray for the marriages of our church. I ask for strong, healthy marriages that last a lifetime. Lord, I pray that you would move in such a way that that our commitment is is to our our spouse first when it comes to these human relationships that you've given us, that we see the beauty of marriage and what it's supposed to be, this cornerstone of human society. God, that we would love the family, love what you've given to us, love that through it we might have children, through it we might have adoption. God, that we get to, to do things that are just amazing to tell a grand story that we can never tell by ourselves. Father, I pray for our church, for the families of our church, God, that we would be a people committed to one another and who, who desperately love each other. Help us, Lord Jesus. We ask this all in your name. Amen.